0: Generally, people don't call me up and talk about current events. It's a show where people share very personal stories. Uh, But one of the things I'm really growing to like about it, because I think I've been doing it over four years at this point, Uh, maybe coming up on five. Uh, But one of the things that I've really been enjoying more and more as the show kind of ages is, you know, somebody all, you know, this week someone called up and our episode was about it was this guy who just really loves groundhog day he's obsessed with groundhog day runs a groundhog day website like one of our silly episodes sometimes we have the really dramatic ones the holiday he keeps an internet database of all the different weather predicting animals and he just wants to talk about that but then at the top of the call can't help but mention oh yeah like you know things come up this year i didn't get to go see any of them live because of covid and this and that and the thing that i actually really it's become very meaningful to me is I've already realized you can go back and listen to episodes of mine from 2016 before the election. Everybody's making fun of Donald Trump. You can listen in 2017 and hear people bring up uh, you know, uh, political, they, they might mention, you know, uh, children getting separated at the border before they launch into the story of their own personal thing. And obviously this year, everybody's mentioning the pandemic and the social unrest stuff. So, it's really meaningful for me to realize, oh, this is not like a produced thing. We're not aiming for that. But in 20, 30, 50 years, if anybody stumbles upon these, this will be a way where they could go, oh, in 2018, this was what was on people's minds. In, in 2019, 2020, in a way that makes me feel actually really proud of the show. That I, I have that I do have that feeling with this one of like, oh, most of the things I've done in my career, no one will care about. They already don't, by and large. But I feel like this one might actually have relevance after I'm dead and gone, because people can look back and go, "Oh, that's what, that's what it was like back then," in their own words. You know, because we don't really, um, we don't edit the show, and we don't produce it. We don't force people to say anything. So,
1: I like that side. Of it. When you first started the show, it was part of the idea to just be like, "Hey, here's something that I could." feasibly turn around relatively quickly on a weekly basis
0: uh yeah i mean i i I really you know i come from a background of improv i came up at the upright citizens brigade theater so i've always um you know i never really transitioned to a writer i've done a lot of acting but i really have always thrived best i think in situations where it's like yeah let's just see what happens and let the chaos kind of unfold, let the audience see the different directions it might go in. And then let's take our best shot. And if things go wrong, they get to see it. And and with beautiful anonymous, they get to hear it. And I, I just think I'm kind of at my most comfortable when it's a little bit, let's fly by the seat of our pants. And you know, let's, uh, Let's go take a big swing and it's either going to be gold or we're going to fart out some nonsense. And I don't know which one it is, but that's part of the excitement. I think a lot of the things I'm most proud of in my professional life kind of fit that description. And It's also, I have to say, it's probably one of the most low-maintenance podcasts there is. I just tweet out a phone number and then people call me. They want to talk and I don't ever have to book a guest. I don't ever have to... Scheduled studio time to accommodate other people's schedules. Like, big fan of that. It it does appeal to my lazy side to just go. Oh, I just show up and tweet out a number, and then the show, the gears start turning on their own. That's pretty nice.
1: When I think of most people that have come out of UCP, they're either in in a lot of cases writers or actors. Obviously, you've done acting, but it sounds like improv continues to very much be a through line with a lot of what you do. Do you find that that, that skill set in and of itself without these other things kind of bolstering it doesn't necessarily translate as easily into as many things?
0: Well, it's right. It's, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. I, I, um, I mean, a, a tough question was very, you know, just, not that it has any uh, profound impact outside of just me analyzing it, but it's hard to answer. Um, because at the end of the day, I, I've come more and more to believe, I, I think, I think improvisation is a, a very viable lie. I think you can go into a room in a theater and if the vibe is right and that group is working hard and they're really clicking, you feel like you're witnessing magic. I just think when you get out into the real world and the more professional world, it has, it has less applications as far as like an art form unto itself, but it's a skill set that a lot of people can fit. Like, I think there's a lot of great character actors who I came up with at UCB who their abilities to improvise is why they have the comedic instincts they do. I think there's a lot of writers that came out of UCB and they, part of why they can work at the rate and the level they work at is because they spent a lot of time improvising and figuring out on their feet, how to go. Um, I think I, I I'm a little bit of a weird case in the, in the sort of storied history of, of the UCB theater, because Mike Birbiglia pointed it out to me. He goes, you know, almost everybody that comes out of that place is known for being a character actor or a sketch comedian or a writer. And he's like, I really can't think of too many other people who busted out of that place to, you know, at the same level you did, who are known for being themselves. He's like, your show was called The Chris Gethard Show and it was just you being yourself, beautiful and honest, it's just me talking. But I think one of the things I've, I've done uh, pretty successfully and I would quietly back pat myself on the back and say maybe maybe um, as successfully as you're going to find, I think I find ways to apply um, all the lessons I learned in improv and kind of the philosophy that it it kind of instilled in me and I think I, I, I know how to pour that into a lot of different containers. I think most of the things I've done in my career have that, have that skill set inside. them. Beautiful, anonymous, I, I've always said, people will tell me, oh, you're a really good listener. And I think I am. I'd like to think I am on the show, but I think one of the things people don't realize is actually I'm someone who's done improv at, at just about the most competitive, highest level. You can do it for 20 straight years and they don't always realize it or they rarely realize it but a lot of times they're just in an improv scene with me cuz i'm just listening i'm just hearing what they have to say i'm just trying to heighten it i'm trying to encourage them to take it further by showing my enthusiasm for their ideas these are all things you learn in a level 1 improv class you know is what did that person say can you honor it can you put it on a pedestal can you help help them find more momentum to take that where it wants to go i think that honestly those are the reasons that People feel like the conversations on the show flow the way they do because it's. I'm following all the instincts I learned when I was 21 years old, taking improv classes like every other 21 year old back in the early 2000s.
1: You know, I talk to a lot of different creative people in different fields, and they all tend to contextualize the world around them in through through their art. You know, the, the most obvious example of it is I was talking to a cartoonist, and she told me that when she was doing an autobiographical strip, that she very much view the world in three panels she very much distilled Uh things that way is improv still that active for you is is are are those skill sets still something that you use to process the world in the same way
0: again a great question i really i have to tell you i'm enjoying this show because usually people ask me like the same six questions Mm. and you're stepping up to the plate and making me me actually consider these answers. You're
1: supposed supposed to get meta about it and point that out at the end of the conversation.
0: Well, no, I just want to give you props halfway through and just say, usually I'm accustomed to the same questions and giving some version of the same answers. And this is different. Um, Now to answer your question, now that I've finished buttering you up, I I stopped doing improv on stage around eight years ago. I really started winding down. I, I had done it for about 12 years. When I say three, four, five, six nights a week, every week pretty much for 12 years that's not an exaggeration there was one stretch where i had a job in la for four months and that was before the ucb had a presence there that was the only time i slowed it down in 12 years otherwise i was performing it i was teaching it i was watching it analyzing the hell out of it so there's just no way that i'm ever going to shake that completely I Spent my entire 20s, you know, from the day I signed up at UCB, I was 20. I, I didn't really start, I didn't really kind of walk away from improv until I was 32, 33 years old. So it's in there. It's in there. Now I focus a lot more on stand up and storytelling. And I would actually say that that's a little bit more of what you're describing uh, for me because I came to realize because I came up with some great people. The team I was on that I love the most, my two best friends in improv when I came up were. Bobby Moynihan, who people know from SNL, Zach Woods, who was on The Office, Silicon Valley. These guys are fantastically funny. Zach's like the smartest wit you'll ever meet. Bobby's, he, he comes up with a character and all of a sudden he's crushing with it. it. It would take me an hour and a half to sit and brainstorm how to how to do what he does instinctively in 10 seconds. So I knew really early, I was like, it, it, it is a, it's like a joy to get to be on stage with people like this. These guys, these two guys in particular, let alone all the other people around there, I'm never gonna be the funniest one. I'm just not. And I quickly realized the one thing I did have was I was always willing to be the most honest one. Back in those days, I started to realize, if you really look at the choices I'm making in my improv scenes, a lot of times it's depressed people this was before I started talking to people openly about how I was depressed, before I even got into therapy. Um, started to see a lot of people who, you know, a lot of characters who maybe got bullied as a kid. I was making a lot of choices that were under the guise of, an, of a character, but were actually me finding ways to tell stories that came from reality, which I don't think as many people's approach with improv.
1: Was it clear to you that you were doing that so literally at the time?
0: Yeah, it was kind of like a secret. I would sometimes walk off stage and giggle and be like, oh, they don't realize that I name that character who is being mean to my character in the schoolyard. I gave him the same last name as an actual bully from my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm sitting there giggling. I'm like, oh yeah, I got to yell at, I'll make up a fake name, but I'll be like, oh, I got to yell at uh, Mike Franklin tonight. And I really named him Mike Franklin. And I wish I had yelled at him in the church parking lot where he was beating up me and my brother. Like, And I'm giggling. So this is the longest or cutest way of saying, I think improv always was a way for me to fuel telling stories. And I got more and more into that as I grew up more and more. And I think that is how I approach the world. Whereas the cartoonist sees it in three panels. I think I am often very aware something will be happening in my life. And while it is happening, I am simultaneously going. I know exactly what... (laughs) I am going to put a one or two sentence summation of this in my phone so that I can flesh it out to be a stand-up bit or a story or an essay or something, and I can feel that happening. I'm like, oh, I'm you know I'm standing in line at Taco Bell and something insane is happening right in front of me, and I am experiencing it, and my guard is going up like any other human being experiencing something insane in Taco Bell, and I'm also sitting there going, if is that the starting point if I get on stage? Is that where would I start the bit about this that i 'm definitely going to do? Or would it be better as something I write down? Should it be an essay what like i I do feel myself going, I live stories i 'm a storyteller, my stand up style is storytelling and uh beautiful Anonymous involves a lot of telling stories. The Gethard show involved my old public access show involved a lot of like telling stories and um, I can feel myself doing that where i 'm like half living life and half mining it for material as it's happening i feel myself doing that all the time and uh the people who i think know like my wife will catch me doing it my or my mom will go this does this next thing does not get said on stage this you don't talk about this on your show this you don't say this on the podcast i'm going to tell you something because people know instinctively that's what i do i kind of suck it in and then i condense it into the funniest version of it and I churn it back out.
1: It's one thing to be preemptive about that, to tell you like this does not go on stage, but you know, especially an example of your wife, is it clear to her when you're doing that? It sounds like she's like very attuned to that.
0: <laughs> she, she's gotten very perceptive about it over the years and we kind of have a uh, an agreement and she was very right about it where there were times where we'd have, an argument or a conversation. And then I'd go on stage and start, you know, making the joke out of it and telling the story. And she called bullshit on something that made me a much better comedian and writer, which was, she goes, you know, she'll be like, if you're on a phone call on beautiful anonymous and you start telling a story about me and I listen to that episode, I will never care. But if I hear you, cheat to get to a punchline in a way that sells me out. That's not acceptable, you know? So like, like I've told stories about us getting in arguments where I might go, well, I need to get to this punchline quicker. So let me just kind of say, oh my wife was nagging me. That's a very hacky thing. There's 10 jokes about, Oh, my spouse is a nag. Right. And my wife, I will often run the joke past her before I ever talk about her on stage now. And she'll go, you need to work harder. I wasn't nagging you. I had a real point. That conversation was an hour long. We were both being very thoughtful. You can't, you can't, you can you, you are smart enough and talented enough to get to that punchline without turning me into a caricature along the way. And that's actually challenged me and made me a much better writer Um. Because, you know, I think, I think all comedians, you just kind of take real life and condense it down to the funniest parts and, and you shine a spotlight on the, on the, on the funny parts and you, you maybe leave out some of the context where you're still telling the truth on stage, but you're not telling the whole truth of what led to the truth, if that makes sense, you know? Uh, they're seeing the truth you want them to see. And she forced me to be a much better writer in the sense of how many corners do I cut what are the ways that i can do to get to the punchline as quickly as i want to while still having a much higher level of integrity than i think uh, and i think i would if i was a single man i would not need that level of integrity but unfortunately i'm a husband and a father so i got to and she said same thing for my kids she goes you can obviously you're going to tell jokes about our son on stage but don't ever do it in a way where he'll see it someday and go wait did i really do that and then you got to say ah not really don't do that don't do it. Let it be a thing where he gets to hold his head up high and be like, "Yeah, that was my part of that story."
1: I think that part of the vetting process with her is making sure that you're not crossing any lines. I mean, you're obviously you're very honest, but it's one thing to be honest about yourself, and it's another thing to be honest about your family.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's about comedy. Is a I'm about to say something that sounds really pretentious, right? But like, comedians have like a predator instinct. I mean. That was I just realized, as I said that if you've read any think pieces in the past few years, some of them literally have been outed as predators that's not what I was referring to. I was referring to the idea of like when you see a punchline, you go for it, you go for the throat, try to rip it out. you know, so I think my wife is is um like you said, like there's a protective quality of that of like sure you're in like you can't you can't go into this kind of like oh i'm smelling the punchline let me like let me now go into attack mode just for that you can't you can't sacrifice the sanctity of our household to get there and i think most a lot of people do a lot of people do and i i feel very lucky that it's much more of a conversation between me and my loved ones about what's going to get out there
1: having a conversation like this or doing your podcast week in week out where you're telling, I assume in a lot of cases stories of the moment, uh, they, they are contemporary and of the moment, but a lot of writers, musicians I speak to tell me that there needs to be a certain amount of distance between them and the story they're telling in order for them to have the right context.
0: Yeah, I, um, it's, a. If any if anybody's ever looked into my work, that's a very astute observation. I think I'm known for being someone who's honest, sometimes to an uncomfortable degree. But generally, if you really pay attention, the things I'm being honest about that feel kind of brutal and feel kind of revealing are probably in the range of having happened three to 15 years ago. You know, like I had my HBO special that was all about, you know, suicide attempts and stuff and there's a reason that, that, you know, didn't come out until 16 years after that incident, like that I needed that time and distance. So yeah, certainly. I mean, I think maybe more than some others, I am willing to go, here's the thing that happened to me last week and um, let's live in it publicly. Uh, I think beautiful anonymous is, is you'll certainly find a lot of moments of that where you're listening to these phone calls and it's me going, Oh yeah, that's like, last month this thing happened to me, you know, or like even like I've offhandedly said on the show of like, you know, someone was talking about how stressful this year was. I was like, I get it. And, uh, I tell you, like, we've all been there and like, even me, I'm doing really well. I feel more stable than I've ever felt. And I almost booked myself to a mental hospital about six weeks ago. And it was true. And I think a lot of people go, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. So I think I will go there sooner than most, but as far as stuff that's crafted and thoughtful um, that's not the more improvisational work. Yeah, that that I put a lot of distance between myself and those things to get there. And I, I would imagine musicians, um, like you said, to sit down and write a song where you have to, you know, you're going to have to play it every night. Right? It might be your encore for an entire tour. A lot longer than one tour. Oh, yeah. If you're really cooking, if, you're, if your career really gets going. I get why you want that distance, yeah.
1: Part, part of the preparation for this conversation was uh, listening to Curse Suicide again, and you make a point to push back against the idea that you know you need to be kind of, that you need to be depressed or that you need to be tortured in order to, or to be crazy, which is obviously something that you had thought previously. I have to ask, now that you're, clearly you're happier, clearly you're more content in life generally, is it, or can it be harder to mine
0: the happy times for comedy? Absolutely. I I mean, uh, I firmly disagree with the premise of like, Oh, do you need to be messed up in the head to be funny? Do you need to be tortured to be a musician? It's like, it's such a dangerous dialogue. And to romanticize stories like Kurt Cobain's and Chris Farley's and just everybody down the line that you can think of, you know, like musicians who, 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 you know, end their own lives, comedians who drink themselves to death. And we all kind of laugh about it along the way because it's charming and that's what happens, right? Comedians are supposed to be messed up on drugs. It's like, well, get a lot of people whose best work is probably ahead of them and we didn't get it anymore. It's such a dumb dialogue. So counterproductive as far as is it harder to find jokes being happy um i said absolutely i don't think i meant that as firmly as it, as it, as my initial gut reaction was because i actually feel like my son's only been alive for about 19 months and i've written um uh, i've written well over an hour of material that i think is pretty rock solid about being a dad what the issue becomes is relevance and that's that's the word that you could hear me pause because it's hard to say because when i was working on career suicide and talking about how lonely it felt to be as depressed as i was i started doing that show in what 2014 2015 and i i think that was not a dialogue that people were having as much then as you had today and then taking that onto hbo in 2017 people a lot of people felt like it was uh kind of shocking by the standards and i think that started to change in the fast that's great but point being talking about that stuff there was a fire in my gut it was a thing i needed to get on my chest i had a chip on my shoulder if you want to call that like your cliche angry young man thing sure but it was relevant it was a thing that meant a lot to me and it kind of, I mean, you hear me pausing because I hate to say it, but I feel like I have i have fought the battles I needed to fight. And my voice is not the most relevant anymore. If, if you look at my old public access show, when we were started on public access 2011, that show felt insanely progressive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People viewed it as, oh, wow, this is a safe haven for all kinds of people. Meanwhile, you look at it, it's lily white in the cast and the audience. The other people who wrote it with me from start to finish were three other white guys. It still felt progressive back then. And then of course, as it went to cable, I made a point, I, I did step up. I, I hired people with vastly different backgrounds and uh than points to mine, but point being like, it felt relevant. It felt like fighting a fight that needed to be fought. I don't have those anymore. I got a, a lot of jokes about, you know, I had a, about how awful it is to change my son's diaper after he ate corn two days prior. I got that joke. Now it's a good joke. It gets a good laugh. It's not, it's not hard to find the jokes. It is, it is hard to feel relevant, but the good news is that that's okay. And it's taken me a couple of years. You know, once my Mm -hmm. TV show got canceled, even till today, that was two years ago. Just two years of questioning. Well, what do I have to say anymore? But then I step back and I go, I'm 40 and I'm white and I'm married to a lady. And maybe it's totally fine if my voice isn't as relevant as it used to be. Because I look at some of the people who are making waves now and they're really different and they still have the fire in their guts and they still have fights to fight and they still have things to say. And it's a big reason why I think if you've listened to Beautiful Anonymous since the beginning... I used to be more actively making jokes. I used to, I think if you actually went and timed the early episodes, I, I, I probably talked for a higher percentage of it, but that was all ego. And I have realized that I have fought my fights and I'm pretty proud of the fights I fought and the batting average I, I did. I pulled off some cool stuff that I don't think I expected or, or many people expected me to pull off, said some things that felt worth saying, but now it's about facilitating others. You know, and some of that, as a comedian, means getting out of the way of others, letting them have the spotlight. Not not clamoring to hang on to something that's not there anymore. Um, and with beautiful anonymous, it's been about remove the ego, allow this more and more to be about elevating other people's voices. And again, that might be the episode that we just did, where the guy who loves Groundhog Days on the air. That might be an episode that was titled A Black Woman in America that came out uh, within two weeks of, of the George Floyd protests erupting. Either way, it's not about me anymore. It's about the other people and what I can do to help shine a spotlight on them.
1: The podcast can be about other people because it's something where you engage directly with other people. And obviously you're quite literally giving them a microphone or giving them a soapbox. But obviously stand-up is not it's not that. I mean, stand-up really does have to be
0: about you. Oh, it's completely – stand-up is purely ego-driven. I mean, it's, it's you, stand on a, you stand on a stage where everyone else is in the dark and you're lit and you have a device that amplifies your voice. The game is rigged for it to be all about you getting attention. But I will say, this is not bluster. It's something I think about all the time, is when I was younger – I used to get a massive adrenaline rush when it would go well. And I'd go, man, I feel like a golden God, you know? And then when you bomb, you feel the opposite. You go, well, this is a profound sense of, of isolation. Getting off a stage when you have bombed, and then you got to, you know, go stand in the back because it's a show where there's not a green room and the crowd is all looking at you with pity. It's, it's lonely. Now, these days, I care a lot less about that. And, oh, apologies if you hear my son yelling in the background, by the way. I think she hustled him out of there. Feel free to leave that in. That's my real life. What I was, I was saying, something that I've reminded myself over and over again is, and it's going to sound very Hallmark card, and I'm not trying to be a hero in any way, but I always remind myself, especially when I travel, especially when I go on the road and I'm out of New York, I'm doing stand-up in smaller no. cities, I always try to tell myself before the struggle, look, there is someone in this room who's having the worst day. Like just mathematically, someone in here is having the worst day out of all of us in this room. I'm sure some people are having great days. There's somebody who had a really bad day today. And if I can go out there and make them laugh for an hour and forget about stuff for a while, if they can have an hour of their day where they're not worried about whatever has been dragging them down, then that's a pretty cool job. That makes me feel like this is actually a job worth doing. So I try to make it about the other people, even, even though it is inherently the spotlight's on me.
1: It must be more difficult to grant people that escape when you're talking about suicide, when you're talking about depression.
0: Well, it's funny because you would think so, but when I did that show, I, you know, it eventually went up on HBO. I did it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I did it as an off-Broadway show. But before all that, as you can imagine, I would book a night at some bar in Brooklyn that, you know, Union Hall was the one I did it the most at, basement space, tiny, can fit, you know, maybe 110 people if it's like shoulder to shoulder in there. And I'd go up and I'd do it. And I cannot stress enough how horrible it felt to do that show. The first dozen times I did it, I probably, I got off stage and was crying or about to have a panic attack. And there were times where it just fell on its face and bombed and it would be like, why am I putting the audience through this talking about suicide and stuff? But then this really uh meaningful thing started to happen. I'll never forget it. Never forget it. There was a show where a girl waited for me after the show and I was getting ready to leave and she was just standing there and everybody else had cleared out and she goes, Hey, I I gotta ask you something. And I'm like, Yeah, what's up? She seemed really nervous. So I was like, Oh my god, what's what's going on? She goes, I dated a guy who's bipolar and I ghosted him. We had dated for a while too, and then I just stopped picking up the phone and I've always felt bad about it. And then watching, watching you tonight, I, I kind of realized his perspective more and I'm feeling really, really guilty. She goes, what do you, what do you think I should do? And I go, well, honestly, like two things, one, don't beat yourself up too hard because I've dated people while I've been in my manic and, and you know, those swings and it's, we don't make it easy. So don't beat yourself up too hard. Cause it's not on you. Secondly, maybe drop them an email or a text or a phone call and just say what you said to me because I bet it would mean a lot. And she goes, okay, okay, yeah, I'm going to get in touch with him and tell them that, you know. I had, I once did the show in Chicago and uh, Judd, when Judd Apatow came on to produce, he he told me, he goes, before I give you any notes on this, spend the next six months to a year, go on the road and do it and do Q&As afterwards, see what the audience says," which wound up being really great advice. I did it in Chicago and this Q&A There's a mic in the audience, and and a woman gets on the mic and goes, "Uh, my brother took his own life, and I've always been mad at him because I could not fathom why he would do that. And and she goes, I I still can't quite fathom it, but I just watched you talk about it, and I I think I get a little more how much pain he was in. So when you say, you know, it must be hard to make it an audience – feel like it was about them when you're talking about suicide initially, absolutely. They're meeting the shock. But then I realized this show, what I've, what I'll always feel in my heart about this show is when I hear from people who tell me, Oh, you know, I I've, I've been depressed to that point. I've tried to hurt myself. I've had people walk up to me after shows and show me the scars on their wrists. I've had that happen. And for them to say, your show meant a lot to me, it made me feel less alone, that's an amazing feeling. Like an amazing feeling that I wouldn't trade for the world. But the the only thing that can top that feeling is when someone comes up to me and goes, you know, my mom was bipolar and I always, I, I, I've always had all this resentment and now I understand that it was just as hard for her as it as it was for me or someone who goes... Like I said, to hear someone say, I understand my brother a little bit more. My brother took his own life and you've just given me a little bit of insight into into what he was feeling. To realize, oh, I felt so scared to talk with people about this because I felt like I was going to be judged. I thought I was going to embarrass my parents or disappoint my parents. I thought... I was going to I thought my my friends were going to judge me and run for the hills and then to realize it's those people it's the parents who don't know what they're dealing with it's the friends who don't realize how much their comments are hurting it's the people around the depressed people if I can get through to them then this really feels like it's worth doing and when I had that revelation that was when I found out how to make this something for the audience instead of just for me.
1: My question was less about making it relevant to them, because suicide and depression on or depression on some level, anxiety, these are things that we all feel. And more more having to do with, you know, the sort of like I don't know if escapism is the right word, but when you're talking about that one person <laughs> in the audience is having a really bad day to yeah, kind of lift yeah. them up with a series of jokes. Um, yes. Obviously the thing that you're offering somebody and it's just a straight or a straight more traditional stand-up comedy show is different than what you're offering in a show yes. that talks about something so personal <laughs> and dark.
0: Absolutely, yeah. When I'm doing the Funny Bone in Syracuse, the, the goals on what I'm trying to give an audience member experientially is different than when they come to the off-Broadway theater for the show with Suicide in the title, S- certainly.
1: Your relationship with the audience must be... It must be so different.
0: <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. I uh, When when uh, I have a friend, his name's Carmen Christopher, really, really brilliant comedian, very sort of experimental Brooklyn guy and like top of the game in that Brooklyn world. And I said to him, I go, look, I go on the road and I go to these places. I go to the Funny Bone in Syracuse. Come do those with me. Like, that'll be a real challenge for you. You know? He's like, cool. So... We did St. Louis. The club was in the basement of a mall. And if you know comedy, it's, that's a different environment than the art, the art spaces of Brooklyn. And we do the show. The show goes fine. And then you know I have my merchandise table set up afterwards. And a, a young lady, it's the first show he's done with me on the road. A young lady comes up to the table and goes, you know, uh, your work has really meant a lot. And then she bursts out crying and turns and runs, runs out of the venue. And my friend goes, what was that? What was that? Carmen's like, what What, what was that? I go, well, you're going to have to get used to versions of that. Cause it happens every now and then. It's not like a line of people br- bursting out in tears, but, but yeah, occasionally someone shows up at the club. That's the two drink minimum. Enjoy the jalapeno poppers club. And They come up, they come up to me afterwards. And, uh, they they let me know that 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 connection is very real and and different than what you get with some other people. And At times I'm insecure about that, and at times I'm very proud of that.
1: This is a discussion I have a lot with musicians. Um, you know this this idea of kind of of having a hit or having something that resonates with people, whether or not you avoid chasing that. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this with regards to um, Hannah Gatsby, right, and Nanette, and like. Obviously, that was a big breakthrough for a lot of people. it 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 was and you know, and was was hugely popular and meant to a lot of people, a lot to a lot of people. And I wonder after something like that happens, you know, or after you have a stand official like career suicide, is that something that you try to chase? Are you like, you know, do you try to kind of be that guy for a while? Do you try to be the (laughs) mental health guy for a while? Do you try to be the catharsis guy for a while?
0: I can tell you on my end, I ran in the other direction. I have actively shut down wanting to speak too publicly about it anymore. Because I realized, you know, you give a piece of yourself away, you give some of your privacy away. And you know, it's for it's it's for the you know. in some level, it's like oh, this might help people, and in some level, it's like this is this is serving me. This is helping. Me. You know, I got an HBO special by talking about it, so, but I don't want to have to top that. And if I'm never on HBO again, that's fine because you know I was just joking before about the woman who who came up and started crying right away. It's not easy you know i once had a family come up to me after a show and, and it was a father and three kids and and they each took turns telling me the different times all four of them had been institutionalized and they're telling me how much my work means to them but sometimes i think sometimes what i didn't anticipate coming and what people do not realize because they have nothing but good intention and it means the world to me to hear that i help people but you know somebody comes up to me in atlanta and tells me a story that's about something extraordinarily dark that happened to them. And I'm always happy to have helped. I'm flattered that they trust me at the same time. It's like, you know, I don't know many people in Atlanta and this is my third night here. And I'm just going to go back to my hotel and I'm just going to sit and think about this. And it's going to wear on me a little bit. And, And sometimes people feel, I think like it becomes something that feels, how would I phrase it? They'll go, I'm going to go see this guy and I got to let him know how much his stuff meant to me. And that's awesome. It does. It, it does. It, it thrills me to no end, but at the same time, sometimes that involves them unloading some stuff on me. And then it just kind of sits in my gut and I'm still, I still get depressed on a regular basis. Sometimes I I realize I have to be self-protective and I can't be that guy forever, both for my own health. And honestly, cause I felt like I had taken it, as far as it needed to go, I felt like my efforts to discuss that stuff, it wound up on HBO. That's pretty far. And I felt like anything beyond that would be an effort to commodify it in a way that was exploiting it. I thought that would kind of undercut every reason why anybody ever trusted me to talk about it. So again, not to, not to come off as a hero, but like I would get offered these speaking engagements for big money coming talk about this stuff and I'd go nope you know I once did I I, I once did an event that was uh, a bunch of people who had spoken in different fields musicians all sorts of people right and speaking about mental health and it it just felt so off and icky and self-congratulatory and 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 I said there's a lot of darkness in this world of people trying to exploit this you got to be really careful about what you get involved in and this is something I've never told anybody but I, I was once offered a book deal um, to write a book version of career suicide and it, it would have been for a, uh, an amount of money that, that would have significantly. It
1: would have changed your life for a bit at least.
0: I wouldn't, it's not like it would have made me Scrooge McDuck, but it would have given me breathing for a couple of years probably, you know? And I said, I can't do it. Can't be that guy forever. I, that, that was one of the sentences I said. I can't be the depression guy forever. And uh, I don't, I don't, I would not feel good about making more money off of this topic. The show on HBO was what it was supposed to be. That's where that was the ultimate destination. And I can't make more money off of it, man, because at that point, I'm doing a disservice to anybody out there. Who, uh, who suffers from this stuff
1: so the podcast then to some degree is a chance for you to get out of the way a little bit to let other people do the heavy lifting when it comes to the storytelling
0: yeah definitely definitely and and i, I think it's kind of a perfect fit for me on the other side of having talked about um all of my issues it, it's kind of the perfect fit in the sense that people know that I went there. People know that I will not judge them if they have their own story to tell. You know, I've had people tell me about one woman who, who I've talked to, who, who told me about how, when she was in high school, she had a romantic relationship with one of her teachers and, it and, and, and it was never exposed. And she always wonders if, if he's done this to other people since I've had people tell me, um, you know I had, I had someone in the early days call up and tell me about how the fbi arrested her husband cuz he was hoarding child pornography and she had no idea people tell me very very intensely dark stuff and i think it's because they they trust me part of why they trust me is cuz i've put a lot of my stuff out there and i think they know that i understand the emotional heavy lifting that that takes to put it out there publicly, they get to stay anonymous. I think they appreciate that I built the structure of the show that way. But yeah, I, th- I think people, I think people are really willing to trust me with their stories because they they saw that I was uh, willing to be bold about mine, even though it wasn't always easy.
1: It's anonymous, and and obviously, it's there in the title. But have you ever had an instance where you kind of? caution somebody or ask them to step it back a little bit for their own sake?
0: Yeah. You know, sometimes people will say, I want to tell you what city I live in, but it it might out me. I go, then don't do it. (laughs) You know, like sometimes it's as simple as that there have been some episodes where it's been very easy to figure out who the people are. And in those, I will say, Oh, I will, I will, when I realize that's happening, like there was someone who talked about how her, her father uh, was convicted in a famous murder trial. And in the course of telling the story, you realize, oh yeah, you can Google these specifics. And I bet if this was really, I mean, she's saying that it was like national news in Canada. like, all right, this is not going to be. So in those situations, I I will generally say on there, hey, if you guys are out there, it's probably going to be pretty easy to dox this person, figure out who they are. So if you really feel the need to do that, at the very least, leave them alone, you know, like, caller does not need you sending them Facebook messages because they're participating in this show. So if you really have to do that and the audience, I think is actually genuinely quite respectful of that and, and understanding that. Um, And then of course there's times where people will slip up and say, identifying details, their names, their locations, and we'll go back, we'll bleep them, you know, and and keep it as simple as that. And uh, then also a small handful of occasions where we have actually either after the taping or, or even stopped during the taping and said, you know, this show is one that can accommodate some very intense stuff, but you need some help or we're really worried that if we release this, it might put you in harm's way. Um, so we just can't do that. And let's, let's talk about how we can help you maybe get some of the help that we're sensing it might need. So sometimes we I would say only probably three occasions I can think of where we go, listen, we are not going to release this because you're in the middle of it. And this is an entertainment podcast it's not therapy it's not going to solve any of your problems and it's not going to solve any of your problems like we're getting the sense it might actually make them worse so we're not going to release this one although we really appreciate you calling and opening up we've had to do that a couple times it's always very very intense very sad it's not
1: therapy as you said and, and you do make it a point and it sounds like especially you know in, in the wake of career suicide you made a point to tell people that you are not in fact you know a, a mental health <laughs>
0: professional well, my therapist listens to the show and early on was like, stop doing that. People are putting you in a position where they're asking for your advice. You're not qualified. She's like, even though my show is about how she's kind of, you know, she can be very uh, non-traditional and, and not play by the rule book. She's like, I went to school for this. Like there's ethics involved
1: there. She told you to stop doing the show or to no, stop taking said, an approach to the show. She said,
0: don't let, don't let it. You cannot be people's de facto therapists. There's a lot that goes into being a therapist. There's techniques that you spend years learning. There's there's consequences to your actions. There's ethics. There's laws.
1: Obviously, you weren't claiming to be a therapist. So I guess, I, I guess the question is, what is the distinction there when it comes to how you do the show?
0: Well, I think one thing I do, and, and I sometimes see feedback online where people say this annoys them that I still do it. But where I always try to, first of all, I'll outright say, hey, like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm not trained in this, but if, if you want my opinion, I'll give it to you. I always try to make that clear, you know, and I, I self-deprecate a lot. I'm like, look, I'm just some idiot from New Jersey. Like I don't really, I'm, and I'll even sometimes say, you know what? My my shrink told me many years ago, I can't be a therapist. I feel like I'm about to do that. So let's, uh, I don't really know what to say to that. Anything else, you know, so. I try to maybe just undercut it and call it out a little bit more. And I, th- I think that solves the problem, you know, but the, the, the first episode was featured on this American life. And I was giving that guy a lot of advice, a lot of advice. And uh, I think it, it, it did lead, you know, you get featured on this American life. It led to a, a lot. It's why the show is still around today that was the one a lot of people heard and i think a lot of, i think in the early days of the show is people going calling up hey man should i quit my job hey should i should i break up with my girlfriend and me going like i don't know i don't know you i don't even know your name but i think i was feeling bound to try and my, that was what my shrink stepped in on and went hey you can talk to people about where they're at what their stories are and you don't need to be the one making a, an act, an active recommendation on actions they should take in their life that is not you're not qualified to do that so I think that's the line.
1: So basically not being love line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Be a guy who listens, be a guy who can connect, be a guy who's willing to make a joke to try to help people laugh in the face of some dark stuff, but don't be anybody's hero. This is not I can't be somebody's hero once a week on an anonymous phone call. It, it would be ludicrous to try and probably unsafe.
1: Do you think that therapy has that being in therapy has made you better at the show, at doing the show, at being the host?
0: I think so. I, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody who's really worked hard in therapy and who finds that therapist that clicks with them knows the first time you say something out loud can be really scary, can be really daunting. And I, I have found that at least with me, I can't speak for anybody else. A lot of times in therapy, I'll, I'll say something to my shrink that I've been thinking my whole life and I've never said to anyone. You sit here and go, I've been thinking this thought for 30 years. <sighs> I feel comfortable to say it out loud. Let's see how it goes. And then invariably what happens, right? You realize, okay, we got to deal with all the this, all this stuff that turns up, but it, that wasn't as terrifying as I thought. So I think just on that level, when people call me up and they're really opening up, I think I am very empathetic in the sense of I know that what you're doing is not easy. I know it's not easy to tell me this, let alone the fact that you know there can be a whole podcast fan base that listens to it. So I understand how you feel like you're walking out on the ledge right now. And uh, my job as a host is to make sure you know I'm not going to let you go over that ledge. You know, I think therapy has a lot to do with that. I really understand how enormous of a decision it can feel like to go, I'm actually going to tell people a thing that I normally don't tell people. So I think that's, I think that's part of the, I think that's part of, part of why the show maybe kind of uh, goes a little bit beyond what you might expect off the premise of, oh, it's anonymous phone calls. It's like, well, it's, it's also pretty empathetic and it's people, putting stuff out there in a really raw way and stuff that you don't hear every day, stuff that's probably a family secret up until they say it on the show, you know? Um, so I feel, I feel pretty proud of that.
1: You had said earlier that you've been doing it for maybe close to five years now. So you probably don't have a good control in this case, as far as like not much of the show having happened before the, the Trump election. So obviously something that's called less. Four years, and obviously, the pandemic has very much colored every aspect of our lives for the last six months or so. Yeah. Um, do you get a sense, though, of how much of an impact dealing with all of the stuff that we're dealing with now has had on, I guess, the feel of the show?
0: Yeah, um, because it's inescapable. It's, I'm having conversations in real time every week with someone in 2020. And it, 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 it would be, if I ask someone, how are you doing? At the very least, they got to give the thing we all say now. Minimum, they go, oh, I'm all right, all things considered, right? At minimum, you're getting the all things considered. And then usually people at some point will somebody will be telling their story and they'll go, and now it's even worse because I'm, my kids are doing the virtual learning and I'm trying to navigate this situation in my life and now they're home. It makes it even, you know, you hear that, you, somebody telling me, oh, and I'm divorcing divorcing my husband and the guilt's even worse because it's so hard to find an apartment right now. I don't I would I don't want somebody going around checking out real estate being in open houses with tons of people like it's coming up as an incidental detail in every single call cuz it's an inescapable piece of life right now. And you see it with that and you certainly um See it with a lot of like the uh, the cultural upheaval, the reactions to all the horrific, uh, you know, police violence this year. It's just inescapable, so it's all over the show. But like I said, in uh, <laughs> on my most pretentious days, I'm like, oh, maybe this, you know, Ken Burns won't have letters a hundred years from now, so maybe they'll be able to listen to this show. Maybe the sound bites of this show will be in a documentary, and they'll go, oh, "You're right," like. In the year 2080, there'll be a documentary about the pandemic of 2020 and they'll be able to take clips from my show and just hear people going, oh, it's a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass to wear a mask. It's a pain in the ass to have my kids home. It's a pain in the ass to have to wipe down my groceries with Clorox wipes. It's a pain, you know. I do think about it. I I think podcasts, it's not just my podcast. I think we don't have written letters moving forward. Those are done. You don't have this thing anymore where you're, you know, your grandparent passes away and then you're in your, their, their attic and you find the, the desk with the drawer full of correspondence. Like we don't have that anymore. So what do we have? We have tweets. I don't think anybody's hanging on to texts, you know, so what is it? What is it? And I feel like, uh, I actually feel like, and I'm not, this is not just my podcast, but I think that any, any podcast that accommodates the stories of real people right now it's actually maybe a little more valuable than we realize it's going to be down the line. Cause I, th- I do think it's a medium that's capturing how the world works in real time. That's pretty cool.
1: When I'm doing this show and I'm going into the conversation, I'm vetting people like, you know, I'm having them on for a reason. I know what their, their work is. I have a rough framework for the questions that I ask when this show is structured, the way your show is structured I have to imagine that sometimes it's just kind of boring. I mean, I can't imagine. Is, is there a huge <laughs> revelation in every conversation you have? Some people must just have like an okay, not particularly exciting or engaging life. And what do you do in that case? How do you, how do you make it
0: interesting for the listener? It's well, there's two things, right? We do, we do have a, a light amount of pre screening. 85% of the pre-screening is to make sure someone has a good phone connection because we can't, you know, if it sounds like they're standing in a wind tunnel, it's unusable audio. The other 15, 20% of it is my producers will just go, what did you want to talk about today? And then they'll go, oh, maybe this. And one of two things is going to happen there, right? Either it's Either it's a one sentence description of a story that sounds interesting or somebody who has... A very audibly good energy about them, you know? So sometimes the producers will come on and they don't tell me the content of the calls, but in our little chat box, they might go, all right, we got somebody like, might want to buckle up, it's a sad one, you know? And that's off that one sentence description. Or they might go, we got a person who sounds like a real lovable kook, so I'm putting them through, you know? So I kind of have an idea in that sense. And there's been... We're coming up on 240 episodes. I think there's probably only there's probably been less than 15 or a dozen that we haven't put out. Some of those have been because, like I said, you got to stop it and go, "Hey, this is you, you. need to deal with some stuff here." There's two or three of those. And then a bunch where I just kind of like dropped the ball as a host or, or you know, I over-talked or I was tired that day or whatever. And then a handful that, yes, have just been kind of boring. One of my favorite – there was one call where in the middle of it, the woman stopped and went, I feel like this is uh, really boring. I feel like this is really going to be boring to people. I go, oh, yeah, it might be. If it is, well, you just probably won't put it out then. And she's like, all right, yeah, good. I got to say, I think this one kind of shit the bed. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Um, but then you know what the really pleasant thing is is sometimes people call up and they'll go I want to talk about this and we'll go okay that's worth a shot and then along the way we just stumble into something else there's two examples I really love which is one in the very early days of the show a guy called up and he's like I I managed to get a passport on like three days notice and I was like I thought that was impossible and he's like yeah i'll tell you how i did and he's telling me about how he's like driving to the city eight hours away because their passport office works quicker and i'm like this is fine and at some point he offhandedly mentions that he grew up in like a uh heavily orthodox jewish community and he left and he's cut off from his family now and all this and i was like we, he wanted to tell me about a passport, which was fine, but it, it literally is about like visiting bureaucratic government. Like you're pretty much starting by going to the one step above the DMV. All of a sudden, we have this family tale of you like leaving a culture and escaping, and your family and this and that. And then another one was so simple. We had a guy calling up, to talking to me about how he worked in 3D animation. This episode's called The Puppet Master. It's a, a lot of fans point to it as their favorite one. He's telling me what it's like. He's telling me, oh, here's here's where 3D animation is at. Uh, you know, there's not many jobs in it. Here's how I came out of school and got one. And at one point I said something that made him laugh and his laugh. I can't even replicate it, but it was akin to this. It was like, <laughs> like and and that doesn't even come close. It was like a goose. He's like, <laughs> that's what it was more like. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on, man? You okay? And he's like, Oh God, yeah, that's how I laugh. Everybody makes fun of me. So it's like, you know, we're not talking about animation anymore. I'm just going to try to make you laugh now. And it's just, the whole back half of the call is just him going (laughs) as I try to make him laugh. And sometimes the ones that are a little boring, you realize, okay, the first 20 minutes might be boring, but what are we going to stumble into? And that loops back around to what we were talking about earlier, which is again, my training as an improviser, the whole thing at UCB, if you ever took a UCB class, you know, they tell you what's the unusual thing. What's that first unusual thing that comes up in the scene? Jump on that. Make your scene about the unusual thing. And that's all I'm doing there, right? Is if it's boring, I'm going, it's my job to listen really hard. And as soon as they sent something offhanded that sounds kind of weird or interesting, jump in and go, wait, what do you mean by that? What's the deal with that? Because that might be, it might just be that they don't even realize the story that's That's more interesting. I think
1: that this gets back to another thing we talked about before, which is distance,
0: having distance
1: from the topic, having to have that distance in order to tackle it. And and maybe in the same way that like people, you know, you're, you're living your own life. Um, I don't know. Do you get the sense that most people don't, or that people don't generally know what is interesting about them?
0: Sometimes. Like I said, there's certainly been instances where people are telling me one thing And then other stuff comes out where I'm going, wait, that blows my mind. The more common answer though, which I think is a little bit more of a bummer is I think very often people will know the story they have. That's really fascinating, but they will feel like no one wants to slow down and hear it. I think that's a big part of the appeal of the show. Our show for a long time, I was really baffled because the show—the show's largest demographic of listeners is middle-aged women. And I came up as a comedian where it was all hipsters and punk rock kids that liked me. So I was like, what? And then I realized this show is all about slowing down and listening and giving someone else the ability to talk about themselves for an hour and really just try to stay out of the way. And I, I've come to realize there's a lot of women in this world who feel unlistened to. And I think that's a big part of the appeal for the show. And I think sometimes the fact that I am just like a 40-year-old white dude who admits his own ignorance to stuff, who's willing to just shut up and let them talk, I think it explains why I've been lucky enough to have that audience flock to the show. It's for people who feel unlistened to, so yeah. Yeah. A lot of times people go, I know exactly what my story is. Will you actually shut the hell up and let me say it, you know? And that's what the show is. It's me shutting the hell up and letting people say their stuff.